From the Green Velvet Couch, this is Shelley O'Neill. I'm the therapist, corporate wellness consultant, and the owner of the Six Facility Private Behavioral Health and Psychiatry Healthcare Group. On this podcast, I'll be bringing you inspiring stories and valuable insights from people who have harnessed their inner strength to overcome obstacles and to achieve success. I believe no matter what challenges come our way, we're designed to conquer them. Together, we'll explore the transformative power of resilience, cultivate a mindset that embraces growth, and uncover strategies that will allow us to face life's challenges head on, one episode at a time. Welcome everyone to Conversations from the Green Velvet Couch. I'm super excited to have our renowned local expert, Dr. Lori Ballou with us. She is our psychiatrist and she was head of UofL Psychiatry department. So I'm going to let her share a little bit more about her own background credentials. I think you have three doctorates and also just uh, share her journey in the mental health field and um, how she arrived at the place that she is today. So welcome, Dr. Bullen. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I was uh, actually uh, chief of service for psychiatry at, at UofL Hospital. Dr. Tasman was the chair of the department while I was there, so I wouldn't want to take uh, anything away from him, but I was chief of service there at U of L Hospital. So, you know, reaching to becoming a psychiatrist was kind of a circuitous route for me. I went to Murray State. I was going to be an, a music major. Uh, so that didn't last very long. I loved music. I loved the piano. I still play the piano. But I decided that I really wasn't good enough to be a, a classical pianist. And I just didn't really want to teach music. So I then majored in English and psychology because I loved English. I wanted to be able to teach others the beauty of the English language, the linguistics behind the English language as well. And then I met someone who was uh, getting their degree, their master's in speech pathology. And that kind of jived with English because you can't really speak English if you have trouble speaking. So I thought, I'm going to do that. So I became a speech pathologist. I completed my master's degree at Murray State in speech pathology and worked as a speech pathologist. Then I got a doctorate in program development and a doctorate in speech pathology and worked as a speech pathologist for 16 years and helped to start the speech therapy program at Mercy Lourdes Hospital and did start the swallowing study program there. Yeah. And after doing that for 16 years, I saw so many clientele that had brain injuries and strokes. I wanted to be more medically involved. So I wanted to go to medical school and I did. Initially, I did my internship in family practice and loved that. But I, I had a connection with patients And in our internship year, we had our own clinic. And most of my clinic, the patients had mental health issues. And the people would say to me, oh, send those patients to Dr. Ballou. She sees all the patients with mental health issues. And I soon realized that was my niche. And so then I got accepted into the residency program at UofL and and the rest is history. And, you know, I graduated became board certified in psychiatry. And and that's what I've been doing for the past number of years. And that's what I enjoy and love. That's a great journey. So it kind of evolved. (laughs) It did. So as a psychiatrist, and I know you're also an addictionologist Mm -hmm. as well, 
And it, am I correct in a neuropsychiatrist? Well, we're also trained in neurology. So to be a neuropsychiatrist and to advertise myself as a neuropsychiatrist, I would have to have board certification in that. And I don't, but I do evaluate the patient's neurological issues. And if it's, uh, if they need to see a neurologist, I will refer. Okay. That's awesome. And especially in rural areas, finding a psychiatrist and one with a lot of experience and, and training very, very difficult. So I guess I'm, I'm just curious, what, what are some of the routine mental health issues that people deal with on a daily basis that, that you see? And like, what is a day in your practice like? Well, a day in my practice, at this point in my practice, I see patients who have anxiety, who have depression, who may have some psychosis. Psychosis is a being out of touch with reality, but the majority of my patients are patients 60 and above. When I was at UofL, I did an extra six months in geriatric psychiatry. So at this point in my career, being the person that has extra attention to the geriatric patients, I see a lot of geriatric patients, patients who have dementia or patients who have a, a health problem that's causing them to have depression. So I, I see a lot of uh, comorbid illnesses with the psychiatric issues. So a day would be seeing patients who are mostly in their, some in their 50s. I do see younger patients who had head trauma and such as that. So I tend to focus more on the neurological issues in psychiatric patients as well as the medical issues in psychiatric patients. I've heard you say this. I've heard you make the statement that mental health is more than a pill. Like, tell me. Tell me what that means to you, because I know a lot of people come in and they want a medication, you know, as a therapist that make their symptoms, their, their triggers and their behaviors just magically go away. So our job is really to teach people skills, coping skills, techniques, and, and to provide interventions so they can navigate, they can navigate their, their mental health issues. So when you say mental health is more than a pill, or you hear that, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, it means that, that we need to treat the whole person. And, and that's what I try to do with my practice through Emerald Therapy and holistic psychiatry is to treat the whole person. The whole person is who we are when we get up in the morning, who we are when we eat lunch, and who we are when we go to bed at night. So it's our life throughout the day. And Think of what your life is, what our lives are throughout the day. It's our nutrition. It's our exercise. It's our interaction with friends and others. And it's our resilience to be able to withstand some of the things that happen during the day if they weren't positive things. So we treat or I treat the person that lives their life throughout the day. So holistically, that means nutrition, exercise, getting in touch with nature or your spirituality, whatever that may be, interaction with others, and then if needed, medication. And I know you refer um, to like yoga and Tai Chi mm -hmm. and that sort of thing as well. So well, let me ask you about the difference between alternative medicine and holistic medicine. Like, help, help me and our listeners understand the difference because I think it's confusing. Right. Well, holistic medicine is treating the whole. 
So just as I referenced what a person's life is during the day. So holistically, we treat the nutrition, what we eat, our exercise, getting a balanced uh, routine in one's life, the spirituality that a person may have, whether it's going to a church, a synagogue, or communing with nature, sitting out in their gazebo, having a glass of tea or a cup of coffee. So holistic is the mind, body, spirit. Alternative medicine is delving into those things that aren't part of routine allopathic or osteopathic medicine. So alternative medicine is using herbs, spices, acupuncture, all of those different things that aren't necessarily part of allopathic or osteopathic medicine. So if you go to an acupuncturist, that's alternative medicine. If you go to a masseuse, that's alternative medicine. If you take St. John's wort, that's alternative medicine. So people can go to a health food store and there are all kinds of alternative medicines there that aren't part of the routine medical practice. It's really helpful to know the difference and to understand that because I think they get intertwined mm-hmm. a lot. Let me ask you about the belief that people can change. As a physician, you've done things like you deliver babies. I at, did. At one point, did you tell me around 100 babies? I did. Okay. So you, you've really seen, and now you're talking about you spend a lot of, a lot of time with geriatric patients. So the whole lifespan of a person, mm-hmm. you've really been able to be a, a part of that. So do you believe that people can change? Well, yes. I wouldn't be sitting in this chair talking to you right now. People can change and people do change. Changing is just a matter of desire, need, and contemplation and acceptance. So let's say someone smokes and they want to quit smoking. So that desire, that wanting to quit and that contemplation of quitting is that little flame of wanting to change. So giving them guidance on how to quit smoking, providing medication if they can't do it without medication, plus the coaching to quit smoking, we would do that. And people quit smoking. People quit smoking every day. So that's a big change because nicotine is a very addictive chemical. So people do change. People change in their interactions with others. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I was very shy. I'm still very shy. I'm an introvert. But when I need to be an extrovert, I can make myself be an extrovert. So that's a change. So so people can change out of need and out of desire. I love that. Out of need, out of desire. What's the difference between a mental illness and just uh, an annoying behavior? Well, an annoying behavior is something that just kind of irritates us. But we can continue our lives, our work life, our home life, our social life. A mental illness impairs one's functioning, daily functioning throughout the day. So let's take an example of a child in school who has obsessive compulsive disorder. And let's say that child has obsessive compulsive disorder so severe. And their need to make them feel like they can get through whatever task it is, is to count to 13. So they count to 13 before they do anything. So what happens? They're not able to get their work done. 
they're late, they can't pay attention because they're busy counting to 13 to be able to complete the task. So that illness impairs their daily functioning, where if it was just a little habit of twirling their pencil every once in a while, like we all do, it's a big difference because when we have a mental illness, it impairs our daily functioning. Mental illness uh, comes to diagnosis and you have to make criteria. It's a very systematic approach. It's Mm -hmm. not just, oh, I think you have this or that. So I find, you know, as a therapist, that a lot of people are fearful. They don't understand like mental, when you say mental illness or Mm -hmm. mental health, it's a negative connotation. But really all of us have mental health, just like we have physical health, spiritual health, financial health, and and emotional health. Mm -hmm. So what what sorts of things do you think decrease that stigma of of mental health? What What would encourage people to seek services? versus being fearful and and not wanting to have a diagnosis. I think one thing is to to educate the public that our mental well-being adds to our physical well-being. When people have a cardiac event, what happens? They have chest pain. They could pass out, have loss of oxygen. Maybe they need CPR. They go to the hospital and they get a stent. And all surrounding that is not only physical health, but mental health. How does that affect the person? Do they become frightened? Are they afraid to go out by themselves since they had that cardiac event? So it's important to explain that mental health and physical health, you know, it's all intertwined. Our brain controls the rest of us. If if I tell my brain to do something, which is my brain really saying it or telling me to do it, then I do it. If I can use Tai Chi to calm down or use mindfulness meditation to calm down. It not only helps my mental well-being, it helps my physical well-being. So I think it's important to educate people that mental health and physical health are intertwined. That's where the idea of holistic comes in, mind, body, and spirit, because our mind is not You know, you can't cut your head off and sit it over here and say, well, there's my mental health and here's my physical health walking around without my head. That's not the case. We're all one person. So our mental well-being helps control our physical well-being. How many times do people say, oh, I'm so stressed? Well, if we don't learn to take care of the stress, then eventually it can become a mental health issue and an anxiety disorder. So if we can learn to deal with some of these daily, I would say, interactions. Some of them are aggravations. But if we can learn to deal with those in a positive way and accept the fact that maybe our mental health can help our physical reaction to the stress, then we'll have a better understanding what actually mental health is. People really don't like the term mental illness, but no one seems to mind to tell me they're diabetic or they have fibromyalgia or they have asthma or COPD. All those physical illnesses affect our mental well-being. People don't like that term, mental mental illness. You're exactly right. That stigma that comes with it. Mm-hmm. You're right. That none of us have a problem sharing, mm-hmm. you know, high blood pressure or a diabetic mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I'm curious about is, I know you're also an addictionologist. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that and talk a little bit about an addictive personality 
and just the kind of how you how you came into treating people that were struggling with addiction and what type of addiction mm-hmm. drugs alcohol other substances food gambling mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that okay so when I was at the University of Louisville on faculty there, I had the opportunity to get extra training in addiction medicine. So I took that opportunity and I took my boards and passed my boards and uh, became board certified in addiction medicine. So because I have that certification, I treat patients and have others at my office, nurse practitioners and physician assistants who treat patients who have opiate dependence or addiction and alcohol addiction, methamphetamine addiction, the various addictions that that we can treat on an outpatient basis. I have found that being able to treat people who have addiction gives them a new life. Nobody wants to be an addict. Nobody wants to be an alcoholic. Nobody wants to be an opiate addict or a methamphetamine addict. What happens is if, if a person uses a substance often enough and long enough, the body becomes physiologically addicted. They may initially use that substance to feel better, but then if they use it often enough, they will physiologically become addicted. So there are all kinds of different personalities, but in the DSM-5, which we use for diagnosis of mental illness and mental health issues, there's not an addiction personality in there. That's not a diagnosis. Addiction happens oftentimes because of a genetic predisposition. So if one's mother and father had addiction and they have four children, all those four children are going to have a propensity to become addicted if they use. If one parent has addiction and they have four children, maybe two of those children will have a propensity to become addicted if they use. In alcoholism, there's a enzyme in the liver called aldehyde dehydrogenase. People who don't have enough aldehyde dehydrogenase to process alcohol are much more susceptible to becoming addicted to alcohol. Many Native Americans don't have enough aldehyde dehydrogenase in their livers, and so they have a hard time uh, processing alcohol appropriately and may be more prone to become dependent on alcohol. So just the chronic use of something can make us become addicted. One of the things I keep going back to is we never know how that you use based on our genetics is going to put us in that place of active addiction. Mm-hmm. For some people, you know, my experience is they can, they can drink or use something for many, many years and become addicted much later in life. And then I've seen other people who after very sh- what I would consider a very short time frame with use or issues, become addicted, you know, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important to know about the genetics, mm-hmm. how we're predisposed. So when you're when you're working with the addiction population, what are some things in families that you have noticed? It seems to be how that family operates, how it functions, and I'm thinking more along the lines of maybe some entitlement enabling what are some some common family interactions that you see that you think that can magnify addiction make recovery more challenging i think that the major symptom that i see in of families who have a loved one or more than one loved one who has addiction is shame 
and and fear that other people will find out. And so there's the shame that uh, they have this son, daughter, husband, mother who has addiction, and so they, they keep it quiet. And it's the big white elephant in the room, and they don't want anybody to know about it. So oftentimes they're reluctant to get treatment. So that's one of the, the major things I see. The other thing I see is enabling where people have an alcohol, and, and, and you see it with any addiction, but uh, tend to especially see it with alcohol addiction because, and you see it with opiate too, because those are legal, but alcohol is so easy to get that you have a person in the family who is addicted to alcohol, who's an alcoholic, and they're disabled. They can't go and get the alcohol, but a family member will bring the alcohol to them. So you, you see the enabling of, of the continuance of the addiction. And part of that is that family dynamic of wanting to help the person, the fear that they would go into withdrawal, and just the whole realm of not wanting people to know that their loved one has this severe situation. I think you know the story of a client I worked with a few years ago. When I, I really looked at their entire family, and these were good people, they were healthy people, they were involved in their community, they were well-educated. On the outside, it looked like they were checking off all the boxes of having a really great wife. But they had a lot of addiction issues with children. It, one of the things I noticed was it was almost like holding that entire family hostage. Their physical health really went downhill. And they, they didn't enjoy relationships with their grandchildren. They didn't travel. They stopped going outside of their house a whole lot. In working with them, they finally were able to verbalize that they felt some guilt about going on with their life when their adult child or adult children actually were struggling. So that enabling that I saw, and tell me what, tell me if you've seen anything similar, was this belief that I'm going to wait until this person gets healthy before I go on in my life, or I'm happy before I'm successful, before I'm at peace. It was when they, when they get a job, they get sober, when they get blank. And it, it held the whole family hostage, and they were great parents. But that enabling looked healthy. It looked like they were just being good parents. But what really was happening was they were sending the message that none of us is going to be okay until this person is sober. And of course, you and I know that's not how recovery works. It's not how people become sober at all. Mm -hmm. So what are, what are your thoughts about that, that situation? What could that family have done differently? Or what's a story that you've seen in working with families battling addiction? Because it affects the whole system. It is. Addiction is a... Well, any mental health issue, and addiction is considered a mental illness. It's in the DSM-5, which, that, you know, gives us the diagnostic criteria for mental illness. Any mental illness, whether it's addiction or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, families feel shame, and they want to protect the one who has that disorder because they, they feel the shame that my child has this, whether they're an adult child or a small child, parents feel guilt that this child has this, and why does my child have this? 
So things that I recommend to family, of course, one of the things I always go over with people who have addiction and family members who come see me who have someone has an addiction is we do a genetic tree and we start with great grandparents and grandparents. And so we do that genetic tree so they can see this isn't something your, your son or your daughter just decided to go out and do that there may be some genetic propensity for this to happen. So it's so, that on paper. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so, so we do that. And then I also go over a picture of the brain with them and show them the areas of the brain that have executive functioning, making good and healthy decisions, and how starting start using a drug, whether it's meth or opiates or alcohol, at an early age, affects that decision-making so so that they have that. People need something that's solid that they can look at. So we go over those ramifications and how they affect the person who has the addiction, and then we go over how it affects them, what, what happens to them when they come home and they find out that, oh, you were sober for three months and now you've relapsed again, and how they can deal with that. And I have found that referring family members and even friends to alcoholics, not Alcoholics Anonymous, but Al-Anon, the support group for family members and friends of alcoholics. I refer families to that, whether the addiction is alcohol or meth or opiates, because it's a group. Uh, everybody's in the same situation or similar situation, and it helps them to realize what they're doing is not the most helpful for themselves or their their family member who has addiction. I have people that I've referred to Al-Anon who still go, and there's been sobriety for two or three years, but they still go because of that support that's helped them to deal with their feelings of guilt and see that, you know, it's, it's it's not something that I can or can't do. Because you can have four kids in a family and only one might be an addict. And I've just seen the blame the parent carry that they did something wrong. They mm-hmm. they personally messed up or mm-hmm. the reason that they're struggling is some sort of parenting misstep, which right. is not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, we both have seen people who have had amazing families and lots of nurturing that still become addicted mm-hmm. and vice versa. People who had none of that and never ever battled addiction. So I think the shame and the blame that whole thing carry it can be staggering at times i think when you work with a family helping that system that family system because i like systems theory Mm -hmm. you know everything's a system helping that family as a system heal and get healthy and recover to break up some of those old negative behaviors that just kind of keep that addiction Mm -hmm. rolling so well thinking of the brain one of the things i want to focus on at the end of our time is tms so one of the things we talk about in Mental health is technology and the progressive leader in what's new and best treatment for people. So I know you've been involved in TMS since some of those very first studies. Mm-hmm. So I want you to talk about the early years and what you're doing now. I'm trying to explain TMS. Okay. So transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS was first FDA approved in 2008. <clears throat> and while I was at the University of Louisville, we started using TMS in 2010 in the Depression Center, which was started by Dr. Jesse Wright. And we started using TMS with the NeuroStar system. So I first became acquainted with TMS in 2010. 
And I was there at U of L for 20 years, and I left in 2014 and came back home to Paducah. And uh, of course, worked at Mercy for five years before opening my own practice. And uh, last year in May, I was able to lease a TMS machine. I had wanted to do this because TMS treats depression. Now it also treats OCD and anxious depression. It could treat that before, but it's FDA approved for treating obsessive compulsive disorder and anxious depression, as well as major depression that's severe. The science behind TMS is there uh, is a magnetic coil that is placed on the head, and we map the brain to find the motor, motor innervating area of the brain, which is next to the prefrontal cortex. We put that information into the system, the computer system, that is connected to the TMS machine. When we find the right motor response at the right intensity that's put in the machine and it is extrapolated to where we need to treat the prefrontal cortex of the brain, where the emotion area of the brain is uh, housed, so to speak. So magnetic pulses are given to the brain in that area from this magnetic coil. The magnetic pulses create electrical energy, the electrical energy causes multiple neurotransmitters to be released, uh, thus helping to alleviate depression. We do it over a period of 30 days, once a day, five days a week, unless there's a holiday or the person's ill. And then we do the next three weeks, we just kind of decrease the treatments to three, two, and one. We have found in our office that we've had an 85% success rate over the patients that we've treated. Nationally, the data show that there's an 83% improvement of patients receiving TMS and they remain on their medication. And there's a 62% improvement where patients don't have to be on any medication. So that's better than any antidepressant. So TMS has proved to be very helpful to our patient population here in Paducah. I personally have seen very treatment-resistant people get better. People that have tried lots of different uh, medications mm-hmm. and lots of different therapies, and then I have seen them go through the TMS treatment. And it's amazing, mm-hmm. you know, that, like you said, the, the improvement. And when people improve, they get their life back. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're really doing is we're helping people get their life back mm-hmm. or, or help them design even a, a better life. And that's what I love about TMS. So it looks like a, a, when you go in and to see a dentist, it looks kind of like a dental chair to mm-hmm. me. It's a little and, more comfortable. I say, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I like that. And they go into a little room. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you have like a screen for them to watch and it's very relaxing. So mm-hmm. they sit in this chair. There's a coil placed on their head and then it sends that electrical impulses to the brain. Mm-hmm. It's a magnetic pulse, a magnetic which, pulse. which creates electrical energy. Okay. And then that stimulates the parts of the brain to regulate. Mm-hmm brain chemicals to improve depression. Mm -hmm. Right. And now it's also approved for treating obsessive compulsive disorder and anxious depression, FDA approved. So those studies have been in the works the past six to seven years, but you know, it takes a while to get things approved by the FDA. You have to have a number of studies. So do you think that eventually TMS will be, I know there's a lot of different companies that 
that I'll make some of the equipment for TMS. But uh, do you think eventually TMS will become a staple in mental health treatment? I would like to see it be a staple in mental health treatment. There's stu ongoing studies right now for the use of a rapid TMS, a more rapid pulse, which ours is, is fairly rapid now, but this was an extra rapid pulse to use in patients who have Parkinson's disease and also to use in patients who are having dementia and memory disorders. So those studies are still ongoing. Speaking of those types of diseases, I know you're very interested in treatment issues of Alzheimer's and, you know, using case management and lots of different things like that to improve patients' care. So this rapid pulse TMS could really help improve um, some of the geriatric patients and some of the things that they're, they've really lost a lot of independence mm -hmm. that they can deal with. Well, the studies right now are showing that it does help with short-term memory, but it's still in the early stages. So, you know, we don't know. That's huge and very promising. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all that I have. I, I think we, it was kind of like a buffet of mental health today. We just went from topic to topic, but I like that. I like that because we really want to help educate people and motivate and encourage them. But also, what I end with, you just spending a minute talking about how how we are designed to do hard things as humans. And I know you've seen people go through very difficult, very challenging things, but still come out and have a, a beautiful life. <laughs> so tell me about your own suggestions that like for other people, but then things that you do to improve Resiliency. I think resiliency, some of it is nature and some of it is nurture. I, I, I firmly believe that, just like I was talking about that genetic tree. But I think things that, that help me get through the day are just, number one, I like what I do. Number two, I like the people around me that support what I do. And number three, I know that I'm going home to my family that cares about me and they want me to have a good day and my little dogs, which I love more than anything, and my little baby grand piano that sits in the music room that I can sit down and play that. So it's those kinds of things that, that get me through the day. To me, every day is a good day. Some days are better than others. And I really, really, truly believe that. They're, to me, when I open my eyes, put my feet on the floor, it's a good day. I think you're so, so right about that. How how very fortunate we are that every day is a good day, no matter what, what happens. I also remember that even if I may be going through something difficult, there's always someone out there who has something much, much worse. Yeah. Uh, that may be easy to say, but it's really true. You know, if you just look around, there's always some, somebody who is suffering more. And if we can get out of ourselves and help that other person, it makes us feel better. Things I always tell people um, in session is to identify someone that you know, whether it's in your family, at work, or in your community that's healthy. Mm -hmm. And what does healthy look like and feel like to you, to each person? Mm -hmm. People that are healthy, it does not mean they have less problems. They're mm -hmm. just better at navigating those problems. But being filled with, with gratitude no matter what's going on. And I think for you, you know, you're always well-regulated. You know, you're always calm. You're always very gracious. You have a lot of gratitude. So I think having the ability to work with you to really 
see that you implement the things that you tell people. One thing to write a prescription, but you really do tell people how to change their life and how to live a, a healthier life. So I always appreciated the, the gratitude that you, you, you practice. Is there one thing that you would leave us with today in this conversation that would help us to remember something that, that's just very important in our own mental health? Hmm. That's a tall task. Well, I think it's important for each of us to realize that there's a purpose for us. Sometimes we may not know what that purpose is, and maybe our job in life is to continue that life and continue to search and until we find that purpose. And when we do, we will have a good sense of fulfillment. That's wonderful. I like that. Well, we're going to wrap up then, and we're going to just say, so after this episode, hopefully, you can just go live your very best life now with these tips and implement them. We're very honored to have Dr. Ballou with us today that she's taking time on her busy schedule to join us. So thank you, Dr. Ballou. Now for a mindful moment. So go ahead, close your eyes, take a deep breath and relax your shoulders if at all possible. Today, we're gonna spend a few minutes talking about boundaries and boundaries are like fences. Sometimes you need something really severe and solid, like a castle moat, sometimes just a picket fence. But you need a boundary to keep bad things out of your life and bad things from happening to you. And you can use a different boundary or fence in different situations. Some people you may only need a picket fence around. Others you may need something that's way more restrictive. But either way, the biggest suggestion is get comfortable being uncomfortable with setting boundaries. People are not going to embrace that you are setting boundaries with them because essentially you're saying, that's not going to work for me. That's not okay for my life. And that makes others uncomfortable and they don't always know what to do with it. But practice getting comfortable with being in an uncomfortable situation or having an uncomfortable conversation. So now that you know these tips, just go ahead and live your best life. Thanks so much for listening to Shelley O'Neill from the Green Velvet Couch. If you're enjoying the show, please rate, subscribe, and review where you listen to your podcast. That helps others find the show and begin their own wellness journey. Thanks again for tuning in. Until next time, go live your best life.